Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm David Kern with the Cersei Podcast Network, and this is the Ask Andrew Podcast, a weekly show in which Andrew Kern answers your questions about the purpose, essence, and practice of Christian classical education. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded this spring as part of the Ask Andrew webinar series— and has been lightly edited to suit the podcast experience specifically. To learn more about the webinars, the podcast, or how to submit a question, head over to cerceinstitute.com slash askandrew. And with that, here is this week's episode. Hope you enjoy. Well, welcome. Welcome. I want to say again, welcome, especially tonight as it's Good Friday. And I want to offer you a very blessed, good form, uh, good formal. <laughs> I want to offer you a very blessed Good Friday. And um, I, 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 if anybody saw my uh, Facebook post, I said that I'm going to make this a Good Friday special. And 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 there's two reasons for that. One is no, I'm just going to do it. The reason is because it's Good Friday. Okay, and and I hope you'll see why practically it's beneficial to do it. But that's not why we do it. We do it because it's right, and then there's benefits to it. And what I'm gonna what I'm gonna do tonight, in fact, that no offense intended here to to those of you who have, have been sending in more and more questions, which are also good. But the question last night about the reluctant learner, well, let's just say it hasn't gone away, mm-hmm. and um, we're all always having to deal with it, right? We're all always having to confront the reality that the child in front of us isn't there to worship the words of my mouth, right? And so therefore, we have to figure out why, we have to know what to do about it, and we have to um, work on it. So, Andrea, we start now. This is the official beginning now, all right? Yes, sir. So, So first, let me begin with a bit of a review. You remember from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday that there's a few key concepts that I try to have govern all my thinking. I try to subject myself to their thinking at all times. And I want to say that the most revealing and the most powerful of all those thoughts, all those ideas, is actually a person. And it's the incarnate word, right? The incarnate word. And that's our Lord Jesus, the word incarnate, the logos incarnate. And the reason I say that might be the the governing of them all, the governing idea of them all, is because that's the one that reveals everything else to us. For example, the Holy Trinity. Right? We, don't, we didn't know the Holy Trinity until our Lord Jesus revealed it. We didn't know there was the Holy Spirit until he told us. And so in that sense, um, he reveals everything. He is the Logos who makes everything else known about God and man. To the extent that we can know God, it's because we know him through our Lord Jesus. So this is everything. The incarnate Logos is everything. But now think about this astounding thought. How did the how did the incarnate logos, how did the incarnate word reveal the glory of God? By being crucified. He revealed 
the glory of God. It says in Luke 9, he turned his face to Jerusalem so that he could be glorified. And, and then, of course, there can be the discussion, yeah, but he was glorified after he ascended into heaven. And sure, that's true, but he was also glorified when he was hanging on the cross. Why? Because you're glorified as a being, God is glorified, when you see him for what he is, when you see his radiance, right? And when, as Eric just put it up there, when can you see God's love more directly, purely, and without any veil more than when he's hanging on the cross, right? And what I want to say, therefore, is that the incarnate Logos reveals everything to us, even in, no, I don't know, in his suffering, in his taking up the cross and dying for us. And here's the practical point. That's what we have to do, too. As teachers, as parents, that's what we have to do, too. If we want to reveal the glory of God, and if we want to, even, even in the best sense of the term, our own glory, in other words, what God made us to be, if we want to reveal that, then we have to take up our cross and be nailed to it. That's how we reveal glory, okay? That's how, and in every lesson, every lesson is a revelation of some glory, okay? In order to reveal the glory of the lesson, we, the teacher, have to be crucified. At the same time, we have to play the role of the Holy Spirit and bear witness, Okay, so let's talk about what that means. Remember yesterday, those of you who were there, we talked about, about the reluctant learner, and I asked the question, is it a sin? And some people at first right away said no, and then some people said, a few people said yes, and then there was, uh, there was a lot of thought about it. And the fact is, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't, right? So that's why I think we need to really think carefully about what it means to be reluctant. That would be glorious, wouldn't it? Miriam Grimard. That's that's now. Are you a Jewish? Are you a Jewish woman joining us? Am I? Have I said all kinds of things to to offend you? Because I French Canadian. Oh, okay, okay, all right. Um, so so the question is: It a sin? Is well, it can be. But then we compared the reluctant learner with the eager learner and found that maybe the reluctant learner has a lot of reasons for being reluctant. Right. And so what I want to talk about now is an example, not so much of a reluctant learner. I want to give you I want to give you an example of maybe the most perfect lesson ever taught. God made Adam. You remember the story. He made Adam out of the dust of the ground. And then he concluded that it was not good for the man to be alone. This was God's conclusion. OK, now at this point. He needs to communicate to the man, it's not good for you to be alone. That is, let's call it the logos of his lesson. So how does, how does he, my question to you then is, how does he show him? How does he show Adam that it's not good for him to be alone? Does he tell him? Ah, you're all wrong. You're all wrong. There we go. <laughs> I love telling people they're wrong. Oh, I like that. He lets him feel lonely. I don't know. Can you feel lonely yet? That's a great, deep, mystical question. I don't know. But it's not good for him to be alone. So what does God do? He brings the animals to Adam. And the, the wording is so exquisite. The wording is so exquisite. The Lord brought the animals to Adam to see what he would name them. Brilliant. God. 
brought them to the animals to Adam to see what he would name them. Now I can get lost in the details and I don't have time. So I want to, I want to be really kind of condensed here, but think about this a lot and it'll never wear you out. What does Adam naming the animals show him about the animals? Anything. What does it show him about the animals? God, they're male and female. No, e ooh, no equals. Gives identity. None is like him. Mm -hmm. He has dominion, authority, right? He sees differences and distinctions. Well, I don't want to get to Adam yet. I want to, I'm, I'm asking right now, what does it show him about the animals? But you're right. We're going to get to that. Okay, it reveals God's creativity too, doesn't it? It's hard to look at all the animals in creation, believe in a God and not adore him. Unique, excuse me, unique qualities. They have natures, don't they? And he names them for those natures. So here, here's a couple notes I made. You've said these things, but a couple notes that I made. One, he's in charge, right? He knows, you know how he knows, you know how he knows they're in charge? He's in charge because he can play with them. He can, when he's naming them, I always envision it, that he wrestles with the lion, right? Well, why is he wrestling with the lion? Because he can. <laughs> he he uh, rides the hippopotamus. Why? Because he can. In other words, he's in charge. He has dominion. And listen to this next word. Therefore, because he has dominion, therefore, he can play with them. Now, think hard about that. Think hard about that when it comes to the role of play in education. Okay, so he learns that he's in charge. The second thing he learns is he's not the same kind of thing as them, as they. And third, he needs a partner. They all have partners and he doesn't, right? So we don't know the emotional state and all that. We don't know what it was like before the fall. All, this, all these questions are too difficult for me by a long way. But he does come to the conclusion that God had come to that it's not good for the man to be alone. As a result, he's willing to be knocked out and have a rib pull out of his side. But now think about this. What practically has Adam done to the animals in this lesson? This is one of those really obvious questions that nobody wants to answer. Wendy, you're way too deep for me. <laughs> Gave them a name, right? He named them. Okay, now this is crucial. Listen very carefully. Attend to my words, my children, okay? When he named the animals, okay, we don't know what it was like in the prelapsarian world, but when he named the animals, he took a sign, a sonic symbol that he could form with his lips and his tongue, and he applied it to the animals, right? He attached a sign to them. Now, nowadays, one of the common words for that is convention. We, we now name things more or less randomly, or we'll drop some Greek and Latin on things, or maybe, I don't know, Google, where'd that come from? Who knows? But we, we, we name things more or less randomly. I don't know if Adam named things randomly, but he, did, he, he, he made something conventional. He made something from in his mind that wasn't already in the world. This is crucial because he's the image of a creator who created the world through language. And now he is participating in the creation of the world 
through language, but he's doing it by making a convention, something conventional. Now, this, stay with me, because this is a, a, an absolutely crucial point. What, how does he tell Eve the names of the animals? Okay. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us, so I don't know. Maybe he did a computer printout, said, here, memorize these. But how does he tell Eve? I don't know. See it. But does Eve rule beasts? I don't know that either. It's very interesting to me, though, that in chapter 3, verse 1, it is a beast of the field, the most cunning of the beasts of the field, that comes to Eve to tempt her. And is that, could the beast have done that if she had named it? Please do not hear me making any accusations against anybody, especially God. It seems to me that the serpent has slid into a gap and, and, and taken advantage of it. No mistake, no sin, just there was a gap and evil goes into them. But she doesn't rule the beasts. But put that aside for now and let's just stay with the question, how does Adam teach her the names? I don't know. But I can guarantee you, well, I can tell you this in our condition. It's a lot less interesting to learn what somebody else named an animal than it is to give an animal a name by yourself. Now you just put yourself in the position of the learner. Because here's the thing about it. Conventions and names must be learned. They have to be. But they're boring. Simple, simple fact, okay? They're artificial. Whether they're random, I don't know. They are for us. And this is the great challenge of education. This is the great challenge of schooling. The purpose of passing these conventions on is deep admission into a community. Why do you teach your children your family tradition, for example? So that they can be more a member of your family so that they can be welcomed in. Why do we teach language to people? So that they can become part of our society, right? That's what those conventions are for. Deep admission into a community. But more than that, conventions, names, ways of doing things that people make up, give us perception. They are modes of perception. And let's just keep that story about Eve really simple. She failed to perceive, let us assume, it seems, she failed to perceive the nature of that animal because she didn't have the name for it, or if she had the name, she didn't know its nature. The conventions are not random. They're cooperative. They are pathways to higher orders of being. Now, the same thing happens in math, right? Without these conventions, numbers and signs and equal signs and all that, without these, you're a beaver making a dam by instinct but you cannot rise up to the level of being a human being. But again, this is the challenge of teaching. They're abstract. And, but listen to this, especially. Not only are they abstract, but they don't give you an immediate reward. They don't play with you, right? Animals do. Names don't. Now, you can come up with ways to play with them, and you can come up with ways that uh, rewards you can attach, but in and of themselves, they don't give you any immediate reward. They don't reward you, and they don't reward you obviously either. In other words, not only do they not reward you right now, but you don't have any reason to believe they're ever going to reward you unless somebody has promised you that, unless you've seen the benefit in somebody else. 
They're not like nature. They're artificial. They're attached to nature. But then they become the means to know nature. Not only that, but they become the means to know human nature at an ever higher level. So what I'm getting at is the names are not unimportant, but they are artificial. They open doors of perception. But if you separate them from nature, then what have you done? You've created an artificial system that is closed in on itself. Did somebody just break in here? Can you, uh, can you block that? No, that's too bad. Guess we were warned about it. See, this would be actually a really good example of, of um, a system closed in on itself, right? We've got somebody's broken in and put profanities up on the, on the chat box. Lord have mercy, right? It's, it's, it's using a convention to cause pain, right? Why? What's, what's the use? That's what the demonic, that's what the diabolical one does, right? So to, to stay with the point, the closed system makes it dangerous. But see, education itself can become a closed system. Now, think if you're the, ch the learner and you don't see the promise and you don't see the potential, you don't see the benefit, okay? What happens in that closed system? Nothing higher is offered to you. Only material rewards can be given by an education system that regards the artificial and the, um, and the, and the conventional as closed in on itself. In other words, the modern school, right? It gives us nothing transcendent. And that is incredibly demobilizing. So let me just take this last minute or so. I'll, I'll take, use that advantage or take advantage of the interruption by saying that reluctance, therefore, arises from the fact that what we're teaching our children is convention, not nature. And that's in and of itself boring unless it can be reattached. And it creates six basic problems. These are six basic things that you have to help your children with. One is the lost glory of learning, or even if you like, the lost possibility of glory through learning. In other words, okay, maybe I can get worldly glory and lots of money, but that's it. No transcendent glory, no well done from God, right? Secondly, consequently maybe, fear of shame. And what's the shame that a child and what, what the shame that we all fear when, when we're in the, in the um, throes of not knowing something? Well, we're afraid of being exposed. See, I would, I would contend that we're not actually afraid of failure. We are afraid of failure, but let me be really technical here. We're not really afraid of failure itself. What we're afraid of is that when we fail, we will be exposed as one or both of two things. One, ignorant and two, incompetent. We are terrified of, well, and, and are, are also just immoral, right? We're terrified of people finding out that we don't know anything or people finding out that we aren't able to do something. Why? Because we are, we are created for dominion and knowledge and glory and taking those things away makes us feel shame. And then, and then, so we're, we're afraid of being exposed as powerless and ignorant, but there's something even more insidious maybe that we fear, that we're anxious about. We are terrified that we are going to find out that existence itself is exposed as senseless.
as fundamentally a discord, as not having a logos. And if I can't make sense of a math problem, my mind says, I can't make sense of this math problem, I hate math. My heart says the world may, might not make sense. And that is terrifying to us because we live and die for harmony. And what we therefore need to do, and, and Good Friday is the time I think to think about this, what we need to do is remember the weight of glory that our children and students have been created for and remember the weight of glory that we've been created for and that the path to that weight of glory is taking up our cross and dying to ourselves so that in the lesson, whether it be naming animals or naming terms in a, in a writing program or naming math concepts or whatever it is, in a lesson, it's not about us. It's not about how my child responds to me. I have to die. And I have to, in dying, speak to and reveal the glory of the Lord in that particular lesson. Okay? So I'm going to stop at that with one last sentence. Because it is Good Friday, we remember the one who died for us and was thereby glorified in order to bring many sons to glory. That's our task and our labor, and that's what God is giving us. And that's the only thing that will ultimately satisfy our souls is the glory that he gives us on that one, that final day when the resurrected Lord says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's what we're looking for in the lesson itself, isn't it? To, we want to be able to say to our children, well done, and we want to hear from God, well done. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop with that end of 18-minute end of lesson. Um, hopefully helps you see some more about the reluctant student and how to deal with that, that poor wretched soul. Um, but now over to Andrea for, for uh, questions. All right. So your first question this evening is, would you please tell me how to get started studying the Iliad? Adult reading it herself or himself? It, I think so. It wasn't uh, stated. And yeah. so I'm going to guess a, an adult. A lot depends on personality. I like when I, when I pick up a new book, this, this is how I handle a new book. Okay. If I'm convinced it's really important. If it's a, if it's light entertainment, I'll just read it. Okay. But if I'm going to pick up a classic, like a Jane Eyre book, I mean a Jane Austen book, sorry. And I haven't read it before. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to read the whole book very quickly just for the entertainment value. At no point am I going to ask myself to enjoy it, and at no point am I going to ask myself to understand it. I'm just going to read it. When I finish it, then I'm going to go back through it, because again, this is a case where I really want to understand it, and I'm going to find people to talk to about it. I'm going to, I'm going to identify issues, things like that. So if I'm looking at something that's hard, like the Iliad, because it's old, I'm going to ignore passages that have lots of words, I mean names. I'm not going to get lost in that. I'm not going to let myself be distracted. I'm just going to try to read it and see if I like it. That's how I would start. Thank you. You're welcome. Your second question tonight is, after Latin, what language would be next? And what grade should you start a second language? I guess the third. Well, um, Circumstances are so important. If I'm French, French. If I'm German, German. Um, if it's about education, Greek. Um, and when do you start it? 
again, it, it just depends on what's possible. But what I want is, is my, I don't want my children to suffer through the, the, the conventions of grammar, right? I don't want them to suffer through all the rules and all that. And then when they're on the brink of being able to enjoy the language, say, okay, now we're going to learn another language, which means now they get to suffer through the conventions of another language. The point of learning grammar in, in Latin is so that you can read Latin or speak Latin. So I wouldn't start another language. I wouldn't switch to another language until the child is fluent in the one language. Um, if they attain a, a high enough degree of fluency or you can do a second language, then I would either do Greek or I would do some language that fits your circumstances. And if it's for practical purposes, Spanish would be good for nowadays or Mandarin. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not sure how challenging this one will be for you. It's the third question of the evening. How do we begin to approach the quadrivium or to recover it? How do we begin? Mm -hmm. To approach the quadrivium or recover it. There's a second half of this. Or should we wait until our students are older? Well, it depends. Okay, so, so, so the quadrivium is arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. And in not one of those cases does it mean what you think it means, except somewhat geometry, unless you're familiar with the tradition. Arithmetic does include adding, subtracting, subtracting multiplying, and dividing. Um, but really, arithmetic classically is about the what does it mean of numbers, right? What does three mean? What does 10 mean? So you should, you should teach your little ones arithmetic ge and geometry. You should teach them music, music uh, of the instrument. Every child should be forced to sing, even if, like me, they can't. Even if everybody around gets mad at them, they should be forced to sing. Teach them constellations and stars and all that. Teach them the, the, you know, the surface sensu sensory realms of these subjects when they're young. When they get to high school, um, I would like to see kids um, spend a lot more time on analytic geometry and arithmetic and less time on algebra. Um, I'm out of time. I better add one sentence. Okay. Learn what they what learn what the the arts of the quadrivium were historically because they're arts of perception and they open up worlds to you the same way learning how to read opened up a world to you and um, they're they're magic so but they're not they're not what we teach now. And so, so on that note, would you please not. elaborate? from what you said previously during another Ask Andrew. Latin is the language in which the bride sings to the groom the most. Did I say the most? The longest, for sure. Well, Greek, the longest. Well, I mean, if you go back through church history, the bride of Christ has been singing to Christ in beautiful Koine and Attic Greek for 2,000 years now. And in classical... And well, classical Latin, just as long. I could walk into my my other room right now and pull down a, a hymn book from the fourth century, with, with well, the, up till the fifteenth century actually. But there's hymns by Saint Ambrose. In fact, I was reading Saint Augustine, and I came across a passage where he refers to um, Saint Ambrose's poetry, and I found this hymn that Augustine would have listened to. 
And it's just a beautiful, beautiful hymn. So the church, the bride has been singing to her husband in Latin for 2,000 years. And that's what I meant. And there are so, and, and if you're Protestant, you know, you don't have to fear the Catholic thing here. Um, Luther, it was Luther who said the devil knows Latin. That's why you should learn it. Uh, so Protestants also sing in Latin. A death dailies. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. I appreciate some of the questions that have come, though they haven't come in the Q&A box tonight. And so one of them is, if you never get to reading fluency in Latin, is it worth taking for a year or two? Well, sure, it's worth. It, it just depends what are, you, what are you after. If you want some of those benefits, like SAT scores and all that, I don't know. I've never been convinced one way or another. But some people like language puzzles. So from that perspective, you know, yeah. But... Um, it's in, in a lot of ways, it's, a, it's like um, learning the rule books for, for a, a game and then never being able to play the game. It really is a lot like that. It's a lot of work for little reward unless the child is just really into language structures. But are there benefits? Certainly. Absolutely. And, and then having learned it for a year or two, maybe later on they'll come back to it. That's what happened to me. I studied it for a year in 11th grade, Latin in high school. Then I moved to a school that didn't have it anymore. Mm. And then I picked it up when I was 30 so I could teach it. So, done. I must admit, I've lost count. Was that number four or five? I believe that was four. Okay, good. Um, so I have one more here on the board. There is somebody who has always wondered where the mimetic came from. Is the form historic classically or did Andrew develop it? Did ah. Andrew identify the form and name it? Um, I didn't, no, I didn't develop it. Um, I, I can't take credit for naming it either. Um, although at Circe, at a Circe apprenticeship retreat once, we were arguing about and trying to come up with a better name for it because we at one time called it didactic teaching, which is horrible. And um, in the course of a long discussion, we came up with Mimetic, which captures what we're trying to do. But really, the, the, it's a biblical pattern from beginning to end. And, and in fact, I started today by saying the incarnate Logos is everything. It reveals everything. Mimetic teaching is incarnating a Logos, right? So, so God himself revealed himself to us mimetically. We are mimetic creatures, right? The creation is mimetic. Um, um, mimetic just means imitation. So in that sense, that. Did I develop it? No, I've, I've found I've seen it in Aristotle. I've seen a guy named Spencer developed five stages in the 19th century that that laid out um, five very analytical stages. Um, so, no, it's always been there. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, well, look, it's it's um, it's Good Friday, so everybody have a really great weekend. Somehow. Just imagine maybe that you're buried in the tomb with Jesus, and so that's why you're having to be home all weekend or something. <laughs> I don't know. We're all, in a way, I read somewhere, this is the lentiest Lent I've ever lented. I saw, of course, on Facebook is where you see stuff like that. But, but you know, it's, it's, it, it's Friday, but to quote an old Tony Campolo sermon, it's Friday, but Sundays are coming. So... Even if Sunday is metaphorically not going to be here until May, we are all we are all with Christ right now in the tomb. And ours is a lot easier to bear than his was. 
So let me say again, thank you for coming. Um, anybody have any really quick uh, comments or questions that that you know are like three second ones? Well, there was one ancient Greek or Koine Greek. Oh, Koine, yeah. Um, well, I would I would say Attic Greek. Koine Greek is is the New Testament Greek, and it's wonderful and and can be learned. If you learn Attic Greek, that's what they learned used in the Byzantine Empire for a thousand years plus, and it takes you back also to the to the to the to the classics. And then Koine is easier. So it's different, but easier. So e either one, either one. Uh, Bridget says, you said six things, but only mentioned one, the um, lost yeah. glory of learning. What were the others? Come on. Okay, <laughs> fine. Okay, so, so there's fear of shame, which can be divided into two. Okay, the lost glory of learning and the fear of shame of being exposed as powerless and the fear of shame as being exposed as ignorant, okay? And then the, the, the uh, fourth one is anxiety. And, and the fifth one is specifying that anxiety as finding that the world we live in is discordant. We fear uh, discord, right? We, we, we want harmony, and so we fear discord. So um, um, ignorance, powerlessness, uh, glorylessness, or shame, restlessness, and and discord are five, and then death is the sixth one. We're afraid of death, and 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 uh, when we don't know things, that's because we're dead, right? We are we are the walking dead, and dead people can't perceive things. That's what I love about all the zombie movies, none of which I've ever watched, except uh, Shaun of the Dead, and the one where Bill Murray does the unbelievable dying scene. Can't remember what it was called. I've only seen two. Zombie movies, and they're both comedies. That's my point. But I love zombie movies. Oh, no, I saw Pirates of the Caribbean, which gave me this point. What I love about zombie movies is they're Augustinian, right? We are the living dead. There. I would say that that's part of it. Yeah, embodiment is inspirational, right? The sun is the embodiment, and the spirit is the inspiration. And my medic teaching both gives you the form of the sun, the incarnation of the sun, types of the Logos. And it gives air, it gives space for the spirit to breathe on the lesson, which most book lessons don't, right? As soon as a lesson has been reduced to a book, unless it's very carefully mimetic, it's driven the Holy Spirit out. Or let me rephrase that and say it's, made, it's left very little space for the Holy Spirit. He can always find room. Good question, Karen. Andrea can type up a bunch of places. You could you could come to our blog. You could come to our website. Um, Andrea leads our heads up our apprenticeship, which is a three year training program in my medic teaching. Uh, we have workshops on it. We've done webinars on it. Um, Andrea, and the, like the quickest way I would say right now would be to join the Lost Tools of Writing intensive. It's a six week intensive. Those lessons will be taught my medic. We will talk about my medic lesson. Um, so that's another way to immerse yourself in it and receive it, be taught in that manner. Um, so. and, and let me say of that, that mimetic teaching is a convention, a name mm -hmm. given to an animal that you have been playing with your whole life. Every time you've ever learned anything, you learned it mimetically, right? But you didn't necessarily have a name for it and you didn't necessarily have a sequence laid out for it. But Christ is the form of truth. And, there, and, and every, everything we've ever learned has been a logos, a small L logos, 
and we've learned it by seeing it incarnated. Now that gets very complicated, I grant you that, but that's the essential way we learn. And it's, that's what I mean when everything is made known by and through and in Christ, truly. Lost Tools, you can, okay, here's how I put it. The Lost Tools of Writing is written not for a grade level, but for, an, for a readiness level. So think of it like a music program. Should you start with level five of a music program or level one because your kid is starting in high school? No, you should start with level one, but you can go faster, okay? So what we did with Lost Tools of Writing is we said, we'll target the ninth grade student who has almost no writing background, you know, not illiterate, but almost none. He needs to do it in ninth grade. Anybody who's beyond ninth grade and hasn't done it, get it to them fast. Do it now. Maybe a semester for a 12th grader will do, but get them in it. College level, get them in it. Eighth grade, if they have some writing background, if they're okay with some grammar, they can probably do it, but I would recommend giving them two years to get through it. Seventh grade, same thing. Give them a couple years. Sixth grade, if you've got a really gifted writer with a lot of reading experience, good, solid grammar background, knows what a sentence is, a subject and a predicate, you know, all these basic things are in place. You could start a sixth grader formally in the Lost Tools of Writing, but take your time. I would recommend in that case, you take at least two and maybe even three years to just do level one. If it's lower than that, you should teach the things that are in the Lost Tools of Writing, for the most part, orally. But generally speaking, I recommend IEW structure and style. I think that's a superb preparation for, for the Lost Tools of Writing. And the thing, again, even there to emphasize is that Lost Tools of Writing, we call it a writing, yeah, IEW, Institute for Excellence in Writing, Andrew Pudua. Um, we call it a writing program, but that's just, it's a stealth program. We, we use that because you can't say, writing, thinking, teaching, decision-making, legal courts, debate, but it's all that. It's the trunk of the tree of learning from which the other branches grow. So you know, the stuff that's in it, everybody has to learn, whether they learn it through the Lost Tools of Writing or not, that's up to people. But we tried to make the Lost Tools of Writing a program that enables you to learn the most important things you need to learn very efficiently. Andrew, there mm -hmm. was a question here that I would appreciate having you speak in on. Okay. Um, Haley's asking, she's uh, going to join your atrium class on LTW next year. Oh. Knowing that's coming, would the six-week intensive be redundant? Not really. Uh, two different purposes. The six-week intensive is pretty well totally focused on the lost tools of writing and how to teach it and how to, how to learn it, right? You can comment more on that. The, the atrium class that I'm doing in the fall is really going to be a more uh, bigger uh, concept. It's going to be about rhetoric. And, and in that, we're going to go through the three levels of the Lost Tools of Writing, but by necessity, much quicker, partly because it's adults. I think it's going to be all adults taking it. So you'll learn all three levels. You'll learn how to do a persuasive address. You'll also learn how to do a specific kind of persuasive address called judicial address, and you'll learn how to do the deliberative address. The difference being judicial is looking backwards. Should he have done that? In fact, should he be punished for doing that? And deliberative is looking forward. What should he do? And so you can see deliberation, Senate, 
court, I mean, uh, um, Congress and judge and ju- uh, judicial, the judge, the jury in the courtroom. Right. So this makes you a better TV watcher even. But the point is that, that you'll move you'll move quickly through the three levels and, and you'll get an overview of them. But you'll be doing it all in the context of what is rhetoric? What are what are the different views that people have had of rhetoric? And also, my contention has always been has long been that the best book ever written on rhetoric is Homer's Iliad. And so we're going to go through Homer's Iliad. Um, not everything in it, but we're going to I'm going to show how Homer is using these events to teach rhetoric. And we're going to learn rhetoric by reading Homer's Iliad. And then um, while my daughter is helping me and Andrea is helping me uh, write something like I don't want to make a promise here, but we want to have something like a handbook. So there won't be some textbook that you go out and buy. Hopefully it's going to be a um, it's going to be a book that we write while we go through the year together. Eric, to your question, yes, um, you could certainly use it in grades nine through 12. Um, there are three levels right now. What, Andrea, well, do you want to answer? We're going to type. Yeah, I can type or you can answer. Um, well, yeah, level one should take one or two years. And then level two should take about a year and level three should take about a year. And then we also have a comparison essay that you could anytime you after you finish level one, you can slide that comparison essay in there and, and spend a semester on. But understand, this is this is a this is a um, one or two days a week. I recommend two days a week if you can. But it's a two day a week uh, program. It's not a five days of constantly obsessing over the act of writing because you're spending a lot of time reading, right? And and so you're 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 writing in response to literature and history while you're doing it. And it and the and the uh, you, huh. if you want to see the power of the should question. The law stills writing will drive it home to you like a hammer driving a nail into a piece of wood. Um, you're, you're, again, it's it's should he have done that or you know what should he do? That that's what writing is about. Stories are about classical charter school. Oh, whole staff for summer reading. Well, you could do uh, norms and nobility. Um, he, he it, it is not a specifically it's not specifically christian right you could you could read it's by a christian but you can he's he's getting at the classical essence that it's certainly a secular school and i would highly recommend that but it is tough um i mean i want to say the iliad um the the aeneid right one of the best books ever written on, on, I'll say leadership, um, self-control, self-discipline. Um, what do you think, Andrea? What are some, some books we've talked about? The Ethics of Rhetoric by, by uh, Richard Weaver is phenomenal. Um, could Being in Time by Heidegger? Um, just kidding. Yeah, like, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wish I could recommend a book by Roger Scruton right now. I, beauty, his book on beauty, spectacular. Um, but probably, honestly, the, 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 anybody under 30 these days who doesn't have a classical upbringing, is, especially perhaps in the Christian community, worldview, or world, sorry, world, um, probably wouldn't understand that beauty is an objective thing. That's, that's almost an offensive idea to a modern. 
but if you can get scrutin on beauty, that would be a good one. Um, just a second. Um, I always read Cicero or Quintilian. Um, go ahead. I'm wondering about, so I have a friend of mine brought this into her uh, summer staff training, the Circe Guide to Reading. Huh. Had their staff read that with something so that there was a double layer. There's two parts, right? But as a staff, let's all learn this layered approach to reading and help it help us first as teachers before we bring it into our classrooms. Mm. I like that idea. Not everybody would like the the specific highlighting system, but that's really not important. What's important is the questions that it's it's guiding you to ask. Layers, right? Whether you highlight with colors, you use a pencil, but somehow you're going to engage with your book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. And it's it's designed to... um, to be used at it's it's meant to take all the incredible complexity of Mortimer Adler and reduce it to something really usable mm-hmm. um, to get at the very nature that, that what you always do when you read right what what I'm trying to do when I think about anything I talked about this the first day is find what's what's universal what's natural to this activity and what Andrea was able to help do in that book is to draw out the the, the way okay you you're always asking how long is this book? So why not check, right? And you're always asking, what's the structure? What kind of structure does the author use? And you're always asking, am I going to come across words that, that, uh, that I don't know the meaning of, right? So, so what we do is have you highlight for those things, not so that you learn to highlight, but so that you give yourself permission to ask those questions. Yes, the Chronicles of Narnia is a treatise on education. In fact, you all might find this interesting. You could go online youtube or google um and you could search my name and then notre dame uh children's or maybe maybe um what was that common core common core notre dame my name and you would find a talk where where i that i gave called the boy who read the wrong books and it's about uh edmund and the voyage of the dawn treader and what i think lewis is trying to get across about that by the way you all might be interested to know that that I, or how many of you do know this, that I did a series of talks about C.S. Lewis about a year ago now. Um, and there's six talks in it, and they're recorded. And I, and I go into The Silver Chair, and, but then I look at his first book, his last book, and books, in, and then, you know, key books in between, including The Weight of Glory. And I'm trying in this series of talks, six talks, to, to cover the whole um, basic concepts that are essential to Lewis. And for that reason, it's, I think it's meant to be, and I hope it is very helpful on how Lewis thinks about education. And in this case, it's, it's uh, six lectures. What is it like $21 or something absurd like that? Mm-hmm. So, um, there, there's the, there's the gap. If you like listening to, to lectures and, and I'll add that those lectures are, I worked harder on than any lectures I've ever d- given on, on, um, in a presentation. So I, I, it was a, an attempt to pay off my debt to CS Lewis and I haven't, I haven't succeeded. Yeah. Thank you. Have a blessed Easter and my favorite blessing, my fa- favorite prayer. May the Lord remember you in his kingdom. By the way, did you know it was today? It was today.
It was today. Oh, wow. That the guy said, remember me, O Lord, when you come in your kingdom. There you have it. May the Lord remember you in his kingdom. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.